Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to episode number 90 of the Mets Up Podcast presented by The Seven Line. We have a great series to talk about where we beat the Philadelphia Phillies in some super dramatic fashion. Got started off this series on an absolute high. Then we had some off days. Then we had a double header. We got a lot to talk about here. As you guys know, we always going over every series that the Mets have all season long. So if you guys are not yet following along with us, make sure you follow us on all our social media at Mets Up on Twitter, Instagram, and the YouTube channel if you want to see a video version of what you're listening to. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts, you will be able to find us. And if you're following me and James, at Mark at Jeter Had No Range, let's bring in James on the road again. What's up there, James? What's up, man? Yeah, I am on the road. Sister's college graduation today. I just came from there. Big day for the, uh, the all the families. You have the graduation. You have Mother's Day. There's a lot going on this weekend along with Mets baseball. Grandma's in the room next door right now in the hotel. She's listening to this by proxy and uh, also fun coming out here to Michigan State University and hanging out with my sister's friends because they were some of the first and most devout fans of the Mets Up podcast. I will have you know. I got to say, what was that picture you sent me in the bar with our logo? That was interesting. Yeah, I put that on our Instagram story because I thought it was cool. But uh, one of my sister's best friends, I'll shout out first name, not going to dox her, Tasha, lovely young, lovely, lovely young lady. She's a fantastically talented artist. I just she all these girls have the messed up stickers in the back of their phones because that's that's just what cool cool smart good looking young girls do. They put messed up stickers on their phones like that's part of the craze. That's it's a trend sweeping this nation. So we were just like in a bar like hanging out and the, this bar was like all blackboards. Shout out the tin can, East Lansing, cool bar, two dollar PBR cans, and just like four dollar drinks elsewhere. She was like, I could draw your logo right now. I was like, Yeah, draw a logo right now because it was orange chalk. And I was like, Sure. And she did it in like two minutes. And I was like, That's like was shockingly good like it was amazing so yeah shout out tasha shout out jill shout out olivia shout out my sister's whole hive and shout out the messed up instagram if you want great content like that you can follow us at messed up on the instagram but of course the story of this episode is going to be the philadelphia philly series another one in which we won the mets have still not lost a series all season long and we are going to keep riding that for as long as we physically can because it's fun to say and winning is more fun than losing i think we that's safe to say definitely and mets first team baseball 20 wins that's another that's another fun little thing to add there first to 20 i we kind of fell back a little bit i feel like the dodgers started to catch up a little bit they've been they have the highest winning percentage of baseball but the first to 20 it's an arbitrary number but we will take it we'll take all the wins we can and game one i gotta say did not feel like it was going to be a win even though it ended up being one it's crazy you doing this recording on sunday night thinking back to this game because it feels like a legitimate lifetime ago just the fact that it was thursday just the fact that the mets had two off days since it happened the fact that i've i've gone on a flight halfway across the country since watched my sister graduate college like 
I, I even had a crazy personal morning on Friday, which Mark, you know about, but I can't, we can't tell the messed up listeners about that. It's, I've had, I've had the whirlwind of a weekend, but like this was actually one Thursday night was actually one of the best wins in the history of the Mets franchise. And there's no, there's no way to mince words about that. Like it really, really was. It was so nuts to experience that kind of win, like on Twitter. Cause like the Mets, the most recent thing we can think of is when we blew a game kind of like this and experiencing that on Twitter was pretty miserable. And I just, I didn't really want to be on the app. I didn't want to be on social media. It was the complete opposite. I wanted to be on Twitter as much as physically possible after this win. We were talking about misery. Let's start this game with the misery. Cause this game did start steeped in misery and it was based on a miserable first inning. You yourself said you were very nervous about this one in our Phillies preview on the last episode, which was fair. I think there's a lot of reasons to be nervous about this game. We were facing Aaron Nola, who's very good, who usually pitches very well against the Mets. Seen him multiple times this year, which could work in either way. Basically, when a pitcher sees a team lots of times and they pitch well, you're like, oh, he got the hang of them. He found their weaknesses. But when the pitcher sees a team lots of times and then you hit them well, you're like, oh, the hitters saw him. The hitters saw him. Hitters know what they're doing. And those two things exactly opposite happened to Aaron Nola versus Taiwan Walker. It was each of their third times facing, respectively, the Mets and Phillies this year. Nola was on point because he's really good, and Taiwan just simply did not have it, Yeah, which happens. That's, that's going to happen, especially for a guy who's like still not 100%, I would say. I don't think he's fully back. We saw the fastball velo drop a little bit at points in this game, too. He, just, he started off strong, as he always does, but he wasn't throwing 95, obviously, in the third, fourth inning. And it also didn't help that it was compounded with an error by Lindor, who... Man, another error. I was shocked. Not even compounded. I'd say it was catalyzed. Like, Francisco Lindor made that play in the first inning. I believe it was second battle of the game with a man on first. That's an easy double play ball. We could be talking about a whole different game. This comeback might not have happened if Francisco Lindor just made a clean double play like we've seen him make a thousand times. Spin zone. Spin zone. It was the best thing that happened in this game because that error allowed for this amazing, amazing comeback. I mean, really, at the end of the day, the Mets just got... They went down early. It was, what, 7 nothing by the fourth inning? I mean... It was a quick game that I'm sure a lot of Mets fans said, I'm going to turn this one off, I'm going to go to bed, and I'll see what the score is in the morning. Especially with the New York Rangers playing a big playoff hockey game two against the Pittsburgh Penguins that same night. There were just other things on. So, again, I, I even myself, after that Nick Castellanos home run, which was back-to-back with a Bryce Harper home run in the fourth inning, I was like, Taiwan doesn't have it, Aaron Nola does. I'm going to watch some hockey because I really wanted to watch this Rangers series. And I took a break for about three, four innings here. See, I did. I waited a little bit later. I waited till after the Marte home run, the Nola thing. I think I left in like the seventh. And I was like, oh, they're just, these aren't competitive at bats. It's 7-1 now in the seventh inning. What exactly are we going to do? And then all of a sudden, after some really good pitching, which I know you're going to talk about, we saw the numbers start to flash up. But we can't talk about those numbers yet in the ninth inning until talking about Chase and Shreve and Adonis Medina, who are the unsung heroes in this game. What a fantastic job by two guys that you probably don't expect to have that big of an impact, but they did. They did exactly what we needed. Definitely. And we talk about very often this show, teams, A bullpen, their, C, their B bullpen, their C bullpen. And Adonis Medina and Chase and Shreve are very clearly in the Mets bullpen hierarchy right now, the C bullpen. And you, these are the guys you throw out there when you're losing by seven runs in the fourth inning and you hope to just get through the game, have a, have a rested bullpen ready for the next game when you're possibly in a close game against a good team in the Phillies. And these two guys went out there and didn't let the Phillies get any more runs after Taiwan Walker left the game. Chase and Sharif pitched an inning of two-thirds scoreless with a few strikeouts, including a nice one of Bryce Harper with a man on. Adonis Medina threw two and two-thirds scoreless. The Phillies hit the ball hard. He didn't miss that many bats, but he still got the job done. And it's very easy in a game like this for two relievers who are probably in the fringe of an MLB roster to kind of let the bleeding continue, let the game get out of hand, especially in a band box like Philadelphia on the road. And like we said, down a lot early. And the way these two were able to keep the Phillies at bay is just no small feat. And I'm sure that was something that galvanized this Mets team. 
what was it, back in 2020, was that Shreve's first stint with the Mets? Whenever he first came here, I was very impressed. I expect a lot worse from him. And he ended up having a really nice year. He went to Pittsburgh, I think, the following year, and he's back with New York. And again, I know I know we've seen him pitch well here, but I continue to be impressed with the quality of pitching performances that Chazen Shreve has for us. Every single time he goes out there, he throws strikes, he attacks batters, he gets lefties and righties out. He's a guy who I think if the Mets bullpen wasn't as strong in the back end as it has been, is a dude who could be getting more innings, almost kind of like that Aaron Lupish role where he can get both lefties and righties out. And just has that one really great slider that acts more like a sweeper where it has like downward motion and sliding motion. So it goes down and then of course to... So I'm, I'm going to use my other hand because I'm on camera here. It's going to be a mirror. It goes down and away from lefties. And it's a pitch that just because it moves on two different planes can get hitters from both sides of the plate out. And it's very good. And it's proven to be very good again, his second stint with the team. He's got the splitter too, right? I think that was his main pitch as well. Yeah, so that a guy with two breaking balls like that, you can get anybody out. He's proven he can do that. And another big thing in this game that I haven't seen really many people talk about, and I know even in our post-game spaces, we didn't talk about this because we guess we just weren't watching as intently as we really could have been, the great Mets fans that we are, the podcasters that we may be. The Mets were still very much engaged and energetic throughout the middle innings of this game when it looked like all had been lost. Like, specifically in the eighth inning, they were really building up to this comeback in two plays that I think were pretty inconsequential in the scheme of things, in the scheme of baseball in general. After a Dom Smith strikeout against... That was Jerry's. After a Dom Smith strikeout against uh, old friend Jerry's Familia, Tomas Nito and Brandon Nimmo hitting ninth and first in the Mets order, each hit lazy ground balls to Gene Segura. Nito's was more up the middle, and Nimmo's was more t- towards first base. Ground ball is second base. Anyone who's ever been a baseball field, you really you just don't run that out because the guy's right there. There's almost nothing that could happen in between a ground ball second base and a throw to first base that would make you be safe. And both guys busted out of the box. Like That is something that you see a veteran team do, and you're like, all right, we can do this stuff. And like you watch those replays, and not that the play was necessarily close, not that the guys were going 125% in these runs, but they went hard and they made Gene Segura like grab the ball quickly and make a play. Like Those are not the kind of things you see every team do when they're down by six runs in the eighth inning. It's way easier to take the easy route there and just jog it out. Routine ground ball, I'm out. I'm going to be out by 40 feet or I'm going to be out by 20 feet. What is the difference? Especially when you're Tomas Nito who moves at a snail's pace. But... I got to say, like you said, like that's something that I think I'm going to give some credit here to Buck. I think that's a big Buck thing. I think that's a big, you play every single out hard. You play the game the right way. The old, the old heads are going to be super, super happy about this. This is something that you see from an old school manager, because if you don't, he'll pull you in a seven, nothing game. And these are guys who want to be out there. And that's something that this Mets team, like you said, felt like even though they were down seven or down six at the time, because Starling Marte hit the home run, who had a very, very good game. We'll talk about that in a second here. These guys felt like they still wanted to be there in a scenario where it was very easy to say, pack it up, let's get ready for tomorrow. And you could just see this is also a team that that wants to win. They're working hard and they're hustling every single play. They all believe in themselves and they believe in each other. As corny as that is and as stupid as that sounds, I've never said anything like that in this podcast, but you kind of feel it. This team has, has some juice. They have vibes. They definitely, definitely have vibes. And it all came to fruition in the ninth inning when the Philadelphia Phillies sent out James Norwood, a guy who we've spoke about probably too much on this podcast already, another creative player guy, and boy, oh boy, did the Mets offense just all of a sudden wake up. And it was sick. It was sick, and it really got started with Starling Marte, got a nice little hit to start it off, and then the Francisco Lindor it was not a nice little hit. Not a nice little hit. Well, it was an infield single. It was a dribbler. Yeah, I know. Nice little hit. He got a nice little hit. A little, little beat it out. But this plays off of what happened in the eighth inning, too, because Starling Marte, a guy in his mid-30s who's been in the league for a decade plus, he could easily just be like, all right, whatever, hit a dribbler, 
No, Sterling Marte hauled ass out of the box. He busted it, and he beat the throw by a half of a step. Oh, yeah. no, That's that, it. We've seen Sterling Marte do that a couple times this year. Another guy, like you said, he's going to bust it out every single time, and that little thing kept the line moving and got us the Francisco Lindor home run, which was a fucking bomb. Holy crap. The juice baseballs were back for that swing. I felt like he absolutely crushed it. And again, Lindor, all business, running around the bases, keeping the head down, keep it moving. And it just continued to snowball with these Mets team, this Mets lineup. Definitely. And then with the home run being hit, as Alex Rodriguez would say, it was a rally killer. Rally so killer. Now, so suddenly you're down four runs with nobody out and nobody on base. Even if you're starting an inning like that, you're like, shit, that's not that good. But Pete Alonso came up and he smoked a double, still off of James Norwood. And you're like, all right, things are happening. Things are happening. Things are happening. Why well, the Escobar had a lazy line out, whatever. But Jeff McNeil followed it up with a hit because all Jeff McNeil does is get hits. And now we have two men on, down four. Just one out, and you're like, oh, my God, things are happening. And things got so tense that the Phillies at this point pulled James Norwood and brought in their closer, Corey Kniebel, which I also think it's understated how difficult a situation like this would have been for a closer, Corey Kniebel or otherwise. Because when you're a closer, it's just human nature to kind of kick your feet back when you're in the ninth inning your team is up by six runs. This is a game that you know 99.9% of the time you are not coming into. You're not even getting called to warm up. And just Having to get hot like that and get into your closer's mentality and your closer's mindset is it's got to be not the easiest thing in the world. And Knievel kind of showed that. Well, think about when we talked to Trevor May and we talked about like what's going on before, what's his like pregame routine. He's like, yeah, like you know, I start to get ready about an inning or two before I'm supposed to go into the game. So mentally, he's preparing innings in advance to get in. Like you said, Corey Knievel's like, dude. If I'm coming into this game, something is going severely, severely wrong. We we fuck something up, and the Phillies did fuck something up, and then it just continued with Corey Knable coming into the game, who we talked about. The Mets were just inches, seconds away in the last series from getting to Corey Knable. Every count's 3-2 with this guy. He wasn't particularly sharp, and again, he was not very good. Shout out to Joe Girardi, by the way. That guy is just masterclass on how to be a horrible fucking manager. Definitely, but this is also like, I'm not even putting this on either of those two guys, because what's even the earliest that Knievel was stretching? Like, after the Pete double? Yeah, for sure. Like, I, it's not, I mean, it is Corey Knievel's fault, because you have yeah, to Yeah, it's theoretically better. his fault, but this, this, this is hard. This is a hard situation for the guy. Like, you just said, Corey Knievel probably gets ready usually an inning before. He's probably throwing, stretching, loosening. They were like, you have three minutes to get into this game because shit is hitting the fan. And shit did hit the fan. The second Corey Kniebel came in, Mark Canna just roped the liner right off his leg, bounced away in, a first, in this first and third situation, and that became a single with a run in. So now it's a three-run game. With the tying run at the plate, like how quickly this had snowballed. Which, hey, Corey Kniebel must have been standing there like, what's going on right now? He's probably terrified. He did get a very nasty strikeout of Dom Smith, the at-bat after that, on a curveball that I wish Dom did swing at because he had fought off one in a similar spot, and he looked at one in a similar spot. So I was like, damn, Dom, 3-2 pitch, could have gotten all the... Uh, could have gotten the tying run on base, but not, neither here nor there. No, JD comes to the plate, ice cold off the bench, and the guys, they were talking about it today uh, in the doubleheader because Gary was talking to Nimmo and McNeil apparently before the game, and they were like, for JD to come in like that, ice cold, and keep the line moving with a huge double, which is what JD did, especially against a righty. This dude can hit all sides. It doesn't matter. He doesn't need to just play against lefties anymore. Keep him to DH, but let him swing the bat. And it's 7-5, and everyone's gone, oh boy, oh boy, we can really do this. I think this is probably when everyone started to look at their phone and go, oh shit, okay, I haven't been watching. Do I turn it on 
and watch what could be the greatest comeback? Or do I keep it off because the Mets have been coming back while I haven't been watching? If you are listening to this podcast, there's a good chunk of you that definitely turned the game off and had this exact thought go through your head. Am I the problem? Do I not need to watch what's happening because it's working well right now? I want anyone out there who did have this inflection point after they saw it, the Mets cut it to 7-5 after this JD double. Tweet at us. Tweet the Messed Up Podcast. Tweet at Mark at Draftic Mark. Tweet at me, either had no range. Did you choose to turn the game on for the Nimmo at bat if you had it off beforehand, or did you leave it off because you're superstitious? Please let us know because I love hearing stuff like this from Mets fans. Yeah, for me, I kept it off. I kept it off. I didn't want to see it. I'm I'm unbelievably superstitious. I'm not I'm not just superstitious. I'm superstitious. As you know, I wouldn't watch Edwin Diaz pitch for a year. So, I mean, listen, whatever it takes, it clearly was working because Nimmo. This freaking guy, man. Brandon Nimmo, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. He is so fucking good, and I know I'm going to toot my own horn here, but I feel better and better every time I got shit for overranking him in my rankings this year as a player. He's a top 50 player in the league. I don't give a fuck. He's so good. I've been saying for years. At first, it was a time where no one ever listened to me because I had like 75 followers on Twitter, and I just told my dad and my friends, like, Brandon was really good. No one really knows it. Now, the last two years, I've been telling all you Mets fans out there that Brandon was really, really good, and I can't wait for him to do it. I love that we still have the joke that he's a fourth outfielder, but he just very skillfully sat on the Corey Kniebel curveball because that's Corey Kniebel's outpitch. He throws it almost as much as any other curveball in baseball, and he just went right at it, back up the box. Perfect one-hopper to the center fielder, Odubel Herrera, who has no arm. We pinch-ran Travis Jankowski for J.D. Davis, which I know is like the obvious move to make, but I guess maybe not every manager would make it, so pat in the back for Buck for using his bench there. Like we told him over again, use your bench, use your bench. Jankowski scored by two steps because, again, Odubel Herrera has noodle for an arm. And suddenly this game was tied, and I couldn't even believe what was happening. I was sweating. I was wearing a great T-shirt that night because I was just at my parents' house, don't have much options there, and I had pit stains from sitting on my couch all night. Oh, yeah, pandemonium. I, was, I wasn't watching the inning, like I said, and I was sweating. I was sweating waiting for updates from Twitter, waiting for the little notification, 7-7, whatever it was. I mean, I felt so great when I saw the Mets Up notification come through on the next at-bat, which was Starling Marte, who... Have a day, Starling. We called out the middle of the order, the top five guys for not hitting, and they all seem to have heard it, and they've been hot. They've been hitting the ball well, and Starling Marte, three-hit game here to start off the series, and this was such a big double off the wall. I don't, stupid dimensions out in center field for Philly, but an absolute piss rocket to center field. Oh, so this was just dead ball city. This ball should have been out by 14 rows. It couldn't. I couldn't even believe myself when that ball stayed in. Even Starling Marte couldn't believe when that ball stayed in. Also, second hit of the inning. You never see that. Two hits of one inning. Love that. That's just one of those cool little baseball things you see here and there. And I want to just mention something else. I want to shout out the Phillies radio announcers because after that Starling Marte double, they had just seen their team blow a six-run lead in the ninth inning to give up seven runs to be losing a game against their bitter rivals, the Mets. And it's a team that's been had their ass so far this season. The Philly announcers did not speak for 25 entire seconds after this. I found this on MLB.tv. Someone told me about it on Twitter, and I went back and found it. And I tried so hard, guys. I tried so hard to make a video to rip this audio, but MLB, MLB TV just does not let you do it. I was underneath my covers with my microphone trying to get it to play out and play through on QuickTime to download into, into my uh, movie player to try and overlay it with the game visuals from SNY or Fox Sports. I probably would use their broadcast. It didn't work. But if you want even listen to it, just go back. It was like the three-hour, ten-minute mark. 
Go to the MLB.tv calendar. 25 seconds. These two guys sat in silence on a radio broadcast. You wouldn't believe it. If you're watching the video, I'm smiling ear to ear. This is just, this is like, this makes me so feel warm and good inside that people from Philadelphia are miserable because this was a gut punch. This was a gut punch and then ripped out their heart and then stomped on it and then also kind of threw it in the garbage and threw it down the sewer. Like it was... This was a disrespectful way to come back, the Mets, the way the Mets did it. The ninth inning, we're down to two outs. I mean, this game should have been over. And to see this awful Phillies bullpen that we talked about all year and the awful defense and just everything kind of culminate in the ninth inning, it was it was so perfect. It was absolutely amazing to see it all come together. Definitely. And the icing on the cake here was that Edwin Diaz had just the easiest, simplest ninth inning I've ever seen. Made Phillies hitters look bad. He struck... The Mets were feeling themselves so bad, and the Phillies were so dejected that he struck Reese Hoskins out on a hanging slider. The it slider was so literally fat. backed up. It had arm, arms, arm side action. It sat right in the middle of the plate, spinning, and Reese Hoskins just swung right through it. He's so he's horrible. He's struggling so much right now. I love it. He's one of my least favorite players of all time because this stupid little fucking home run thing that he does drives me insane. What a loser. And he was a loser that day. Phillies lose. Mets win. One of the biggest comebacks in Mets history. And I mean... You would have thought the Mets won the World Series after this one, to be fair, on Twitter, but everyone was having a absolute time of it. This was it. I mean, we did the Twitter spaces after the game. That was tons and tons of fun. We had Mets fans going crazy. We had Phillies fans crying. Like, it was just a wonderful mix. But the most clear rhetoric that came out of this was that this is something that usually happens to the Mets, not for the Mets. And it was kind of this idea that the Mets were exercising demons with this game happening, especially this century. Like, the Mets just hadn't done things like this. And I went back on Baseball Reference and figured out that this was actually the Mets' third most unlikely comeback win in the history of their franchise. The most unlikely being a 1972 game against the Houston Astros in Houston. They were down 8 nothing in the seventh, won the game 11-8. Um, Jerry, Jerry Kuzman started this game for the Mets. That's how long <laughs> ago it was. And the next biggest comeback in the game, at the time the Mets' biggest ninth inning comeback in their history, a 1997 home game against the Montreal Expos. They were down 6-0 in the ninth and 1-9-6. So that team doesn't even exist anymore. These are the only two Mets comebacks comparable to this one, and we just watched it happen. Yeah, the parallels to uh, the Diaz-Mickey Calloway 2019 game against Washington yeah. were unmatched. It felt like almost exactly to a T what happened to us, except we're on the flip side. Even cooler, we're the road team here. We're the road team. We got to do this in Philadelphia. How great was it to watch the Philly, the SNY broadcast show all the Philly fans and that stayed in the stands, you would have thought that someone in their family had just passed away, that their their reaction, they were just somber. They were upset, and it just, oh, it's it's so great. It's so great. I hate Philly so much. I also loved all the shots of the Mets fans, like, very coyly celebrating in the stands, <laughs> being like, ah. being like, I don't know how much to celebrate, because I, I can't believe that just happened. One, and two, I think someone's going to hit me in the face, but, like, yeah. I'm sitting here just stupefied. Even all the credit in the world to any Mets fan who was in Philadelphia for this game and stuck around. That, you're, yes. you're in Philly and you're down 7 nothing in the fourth inning and you stay there for two more hours in a miserable May evening. Just all the credit in the world to you, man. And you know for the first two and a half, three hours of that game, it was non-stop yeah, shit from the Philly. Coming for you, brother. Oh, yeah, go birds. Go whatever the stupid go shit those birds. Philadelphia people say. Fly, you go You can have fly. a good cheesesteak in any city. It's not Philadelphia. It's not uh, exclusive. The, the, the Philly cheesesteaks are really good. They're fine. They're, They're good. They're delicious. Tony Luke's, that's a good one. If you eat Pat and Gino's, you're an animal. Gyms. Cheese Whiz, are you crazy? Shout out Jim's. Jim's is a good one, too. They have, I've, I've heard lots of good things about them. That's the great only one. good thing in Philly, though. That was a great win. That was devastating. And I was so ready. I was so ready for the next day. Because how do you come back and play that next game? 
the way they were, the, the air was sucked out of that stadium. The team was just absolutely devastated. They they were uncompetitive in the ninth inning. They did. They were like, let's go home. We lost. Yeah, That's it. They quit. It would have been game. so great. In a one-run yeah, game. In a one-run game at home with the, the heart of their lineup coming up. It would have been so great to get that next day and play another game but the rain that came from Chicago would not stop. <laughs> no, and also that next day was set to be Max Scherzer on the mound. So after getting just your teeth knocked out the night before, you would have to face one of the five, three best pitchers in all of baseball, stare him in the face on a, on a miserable, cold Friday evening, but could not get so lucky. And it just became like the worst blue balls ever because on Saturday was rained out again. And the Mets had to wait two days after this monster comeback before playing a twin bill. On Sunday, Mother's Day, Mother's Day Twin Bill. Shout out to all the mothers out there again. Yeah, shout out to the mothers. Happy Mother's Day to everybody out there. If there's any moms listening, shout out to you. But I will say, I love Mother's Day. I love the Mother's Day games because I love the pink bats. I love all the pink equipment. I think it looks sick. I put out a tweet today. It was an easy banger. It was low-hanging fruit, but I stand by it. Why does Major League Baseball not let players just use custom-colored bats with custom designs all year long? The pink bats look so sick. Imagine if the Mets had blue and orange bats. If Starling Marte walked up with a bright orange bat, Francisco Lindor had a, a neon blue bat, or they had like blue and orange stripes. That'd be so sick, and that's such an easy thing to allow. It doesn't change anything with the game. It makes it cooler. It makes it something that you can get more tweets about, and people will be like, oh, look at this bat. Look how cool it is. The pink bats, though, they are killer. Everything they do on Mother's Day, besides the gray hats, is an absolute W. The only thing I could say about the bats being something that MLB wants normalized is I bet that the pitchers wouldn't love neon bats and stuff like that. Like, I, I can understand how, like, a fluorescent bat could be distracting to a pitcher on the mound. How just, like, seeing that, like, waggling, like, behind a hitter's head, you kind of lose focus on strike. So I'm not saying that I know that for sure. I'm sure it's actually some stupid legal licensing situation with between Mizuno and Louisville Slugger and all these bat companies that they have deals with MLB to be a certain way. But I could see, because I know that's a thing with, isn't that thing with white cleats? Uh, no, you can wear white cleats. That's that there's, use, there's, I think, like, isn't, like, a stupid unwritten rule that guys shouldn't wear them? Well, I think the unwritten pitchers, rule, at least. I was about to say, the unwritten rule, I think, is more so towards pitchers, and it's more so about white on your glove, that you're not really supposed to have any light color on your glove, which is why, when you think about it, most pitchers rock with, like, the black or the brown, or you now start to see, like, the blue or the teal. Like, those are a little different. Yeah, but like, that's the only thing I can see. I don't know. I, I agree with you. That should be. It'd be a cool way to add more flair to the game, but I don't know. I don't have a good reason. Yeah, no, I, I don't think anybody does. And game two, now that you think, now that we talked about, and I remembered that there was a delay, it probably is why Max Scherzer maybe wasn't as sharp as he had been all year. Delay in the start, not delay in this game. Yeah, no, no, delay in the start in that he got you know pushed back two days. So he was really on, what, like six or seven days rest now. A full week in between starts because the last time he pitched was Sunday Night Baseball last week against these Phillies when we were there. Yeah, which, and we've known with Jacob DeGrom in the past, these guys like to stay on a rhythm, especially Max Scherzer, who's very meticulous about his off days and everything he's been doing. He's been doing it for, what, 14, 15 years now. I'm sure the extra couple days off, while it's not a bad thing, definitely threw him off his schedule a little bit, and you kind of felt that in the first inning a little bit too. Yeah, he just very clearly was not sharp in this one. Like the first pitch of the game to Kyle Schwarber, which I also thought the Phillies, who hadn't been hitting Schwarber leadoff, kind of just threw him leadoff because he just hit the two home runs against Scherzer. Oh, for like sure. Some, some Joe Girardi the gamesmanship, which is classic baseball guy stuff, but the first pitch of the game, first of all, Scherzer threw a curveball first pitch of the game, which that's not something I really remember Scherzer doing very often, and it was just like, he completely just missed it. It was like a spinner that stayed high and away to Kyle Schwarber, like it missed in two different places. Like James McCann, also interesting, this is the first time all year James McCann caught Max Scherzer, a storyline that we should be watching as the season unfolds. But I mean, to James McCann's credit, 
it's very small and we've me and you have both said the framing numbers are nonsense they're fake numbers it's not really a real thing but james mccann right now is 96th percentile in framing among catchers in major league baseball for a guy who we were told cannot frame so i just want to say that because that's at least one thing he can wear proudly right now. Sure. Yeah, I don't know how many people even told you that at the end of the day. Maybe it was just like it was like Joe and Bob and random nonsense 14-year-olds on Twitter. But sure, yeah, we can hang our hats on that. But the first pitch of the game was basically a hanger, the Schwarber. That he, Scherzer was just lucky that missed outside as well as high or else it would have been in the stands. And then not soon thereafter, Bryce Harper did put one in the stands after Scherzer went down 2-0 on him on a four-seamer and a changeup that just both barely missed. Both like those are pitches that you don't really see Max Scherzer Mitch miss, especially early in the game. And he grooved a fastball that James McCann was set up low and outside, directly down the middle on 2 0. And Bryce Harper sent it like 495 feet away. Yeah, that was a bomba. That was absolutely crushed. It was, I mean, it was crushed. <laughs> and the, despite the dead balls, you knew that one was gone. Yeah, that was honestly like you kind of felt the Phillies get a little bit rejuvenated after that awful ninth inning from Thursday where they're like, all right, we're still a good team. Like, that's kind of what a, that's what you have a player like Bryce Harper on your team before. Like, he's one of the best players in baseball. He showed you why. He could pull all that stuff aside and be like, I can retake control of the situation. It's my team, and I'm going to be the best player in the field. You know how, like, after you have a big rally, the shutdown inning is always so big, the one that follows up after it? It almost felt like a shutdown inning where if Max Scherzer got through that one, two, three, Phillies would have laid down and it would have been over. Yeah, for sure. And then after that home run, the Phillies just kind of stayed on Scherzer. Over the next three innings, the second, third, and fourth, they had eight total hits in three innings. That's just not what Max Scherzer usually... That's not what usually happens to Max Scherzer. And some of them were hit hard, but it was mostly just, like, dings and doinks. And that's just kind of what happens but at the end of the day that we're putting the bat on the ball a lot and that is just not something we've come to see from max very often now i know you were at graduation so you weren't listening to it but keith first game back which is good he's healthy he's feeling good so he's back in the booth which was nice nice and he started immediately with the old keith stuff where there was a ground ball hit by either gene segura or maybe alec bohm very very softly through the uh, second base hole and he's like you just Leaving the right side of the infield open is crazy. He couldn't believe he was beside himself. It's like, Keith, there's numbers. It works. Shifting is better. But happy to have Keith back in the in the booth. It felt right. felt good. And uh, glad to see that he's healthy. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't, it wouldn't feel normal watching Keith Hernandez not complain about something that's like very clearly statistically proven, which is fine. That's okay. Like That's his role. That's his job. But after that fourth inning did happen, Max Scherzer gave up a leadoff single in the fifth to, I believe, Bryce Harper again, who's just, again, one of the best players in baseball. And he retired the last 60 faced to close this out and wind up getting through the last two innings and basically 20 pitches, getting to sixth inning, and one only ended up giving up three runs total with seven strikeouts. Ten hits, which was crazy, but it's just so insane that Max Scherzer can have like an objectively bad start and still have a quality start in terms of what Major League Baseball gives you for a quality start, six innings pitch, three earned, with seven strikeouts to boot. Yeah, I was about to say, like, man, this is his bad. This is when he's off. It's pretty It's pretty sick to be Max Scherzer, huh? Yeah, and he was very clearly off. Like, we've seen Max Scherzer this year, like, spread out his pitches a lot. Like, throw a lot of sliders, change-ups, cutters. He really was only throwing four-seam fastballs in this game. Not that he was only throwing them, because he still mixed up and threw five different pitches, but it was the only pitch he threw... Like a lot. Only pitch you through more than 20 times by the end of the start. They were also mentioning on the broadcast, too, that Max mentioned the last start, which we were at, was a cold, windy night at City Field. And he just he couldn't get a fantastic grip on the ball. He didn't feel completely comfortable, which is why he was trying to work fast. It was because he just wanted to stay hot, they were saying. And that he was a little bit, I don't want to say worried, but he was like, it's going to be the same thing again. Like, by no means do I actively you know, seek out to pitch in these kind of situations because I just can't have the best feel going out into the game. Yeah, and this was a cold, windy game again. So these are the kind of starts that probably won't happen as often once we get into the heat of summer. But it's just, it wasn't perfect. And 
that's just what's going to happen to anybody. And the fact that when Max Scherzer is uncomfortable and doesn't have it, he could pitch six innings, give three runs, and have seven strikeouts. Like, that's an incredible floor, and I'm happy he's on our team. Yeah, for sure. And the Mets, I mean, like, it was only three runs at the end of the day. They were doing the Mets thing that we've kind of seen all year, which I guess if this is how the Mets are going to lose, it's better than just getting the doors blown off of you. But they had chances, and they just couldn't get the big hits really until, like, the sixth inning, which was when they kind of had their best chance. Yeah, and this chance was after uh, Marte, who we're talking about heating up. This, at the time, extended Starling Marte's hitting streak to six games. That was broken in second game, this doubleheader, but, hey, guy's hitting, like, 400 in May. We'll take that. He led off the sixth inning with a double. Luis Guillermo hit a single. We had first and third, nobody out, and James McCann coming up, and in classic fashion, just hit a double play, killed the rally. Hard ground ball to third base. Let me tell you, that guy sees guys on base, and he's like, let me get a hard ground ball. He loves loves putting the ball on the ground. And I was like, <laughs> I was kind of laughing to myself. I'm like, man, should have just told him not to swing. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a stat that went around Twitter. got semi-viral over the weekend. I said, Byron Buxton has hit, I think it was 36 home runs since his last double play. That's sick. <laughs> I think that there's going to be a point where maybe James McCann has had 36 double plays by this next by, by between home runs here. It's crazy. But it's just like those are probably the two most opposite players in the entire league. But after that double play now, we just had two outs, nobody on. We scratched out another run on a Nimmo single and door double, who looks like he's swinging the bat a little bit better. And then that was all we'd get the rest of the game. We had another chance at the rally the next the inning after this, after back-to-back walks from Pete and Wilder Escobar. But then... Sir Anthony Dominguez struck three guys out in a row. Then Jose Alvarado blew the Mets away. Then Corey Knebel made mince me the Mets. This is after Kyle Gibson was just annoying as hell for six innings. And it's just, we didn't get anything. It happens. Yeah, uh, I was kind of, I don't want to say bothered, but as hot as Dom was, quotation marks, because he had that you know breakout when he was on the verge of being cut, apparently, and he got Robinson Cano cut, which that's fine. That's a, that's a big win for the Mets anyway. But he's he's just back to not really hitting right now. And I think especially with how JD has been swinging it better, you kind of just have to give the bat to JD now in that DH spot if it's going to be between him and Dom, just because Dom's not really winning it. Like, he's not he's not taking this spot, which he's kind of being given. He's not taking control of it at all. And also because it kind of handcuffs the Mets' bench options when Dom is playing first base and Pete is DHing, something that we, like, had said the Mets should be doing more, but we're idiots. We don't really know what we're talking about here to a degree. Because when Dom is playing first and Pete is DHing, you suddenly can't pinch hit for Dom when a lefty's on the mound. Because if you take Pete out of the DH spot and put him in the field, you lose the DH. Now the pitcher spot comes up in the order. So now suddenly you te- basically have no one on your bench to be playing first. Like, JD can play first. I don't really want him to play first. No. Eduardo Escobar can play first. I don't really want to play first. Then who plays third? JD. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now you're in a situation. JD also made his first area of the season. Uh, that was second game. That was second game. But... Good on JD for making it this long on making an error. That's progress. I like that. But when Dom is at first and J and Pete is DH, basically when those two are just in the lineup at the same time, it kind of hamstrings the Mets bench options, which is something that I don't think that we really thought about earlier yeah. this season. Well, I, I made that comment earlier and I was like, I know I'm gonna get some shit for this because it sounds really stupid, but the Mets are better off when Pete's at first base and Dom's DHing. And it I th- I think it does come t- like true, like you said. Dom can't hit lefties. He's not hitting righties right now. So especially when a lefties in the game, he's yeah, right sometimes. He's sometimes. better than lefties. Yeah, but I'm saying right now he's not hitting anybody. You so mean like, you mean like today, Sunday? I mean, he didn't hit righties kind of, kind of all year, but yeah, yeah. But earlier this week he was <laughs> between yeah. Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. Yes, yes. But he's back to kind of being cold. He's doing that helicopter swing. I don't know. I don't know what's going yeah. on with Dom. Maybe it was an early start. He was sleepy. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever. This Mets lost the game. The Mets lose games. But luckily for the Mets. Not luckily for the Mets. The best part about the Mets is when they lose games, they just know they're not going to lose a series. And they came back in Game 3, 
and Pete Alonso just put this on his back, and he basically won a game for this team. Yeah, no, he was awesome in Game Three. Uh, Pete's been swinging the bat well again after that cold stretch from everybody well-ish. that we took. Well-ish, like, we- I mean, weirdly well, but not well at the same time. Like Pete's crazily hitting for average, but he entered this Game Three with a slug a slugging percentage like below 450. Which well, that's is what crazy I was about to say. Pete. He's hitting 270, but the slugging percentage is down. But he still has seven home runs, and he also leads the National League in RBIs. Like it's such a bizarre year for him. It's weird because he's also not walking, and like the power has come like in like spurts. It's very weird for Pete, but also the Mets got a big boost for the second game of the doubleheader because early on Sunday morning, Zach Eflin, along with Zach Wheeler, which is a, big, a Zach attack in the Phillies locker room, both hit the COVID IL. So this was set for a bullpen game. And as we've talked about ad nauseum, the Philly bullpen is not that good. So having a bullpen game against the Phillies bullpen, that means you're going to get a lot of Christopher Sanchez and Nick Nelson, who the Mets have seen plenty of times this year and who were very comfortable with hitting. Yeah, uh, Pete's seen Christopher Sanchez a bunch. He got the first home run. It was an absolute bomb. He knew it was gone. Gary was lit on the mic. He was screaming. He was happy. And then he got his second home run, a three-run homer in the fifth inning off of Nick Nelson, who again... Phillies had to try and stretch him out. They needed to get length out of them. So I, I, I'll blame Joe Girardi, but I also won't because what are you going to do? Put in uh, Connor Brogdon in the fifth, like, and then what are you going to do? Like they just their bullpen's so bad. I can't. You know what? I can't believe we didn't see. I can't believe we didn't see Brad Hand. I mean, happy we see Brad Hand. Brad Hand's a high leverage reliever in this bad Phillies bullpen. Like he, they need him for the close games against lefties. But that that diatribe you just did sounded like the Rick and Morty sketch. Two brothers, and then the moon's <laughs> coming into the earth, and old ladies attack, and then what are you gonna do? Like that's kind of what this was for Joe Girardi. He had almost no chance to win this game, so it felt really good that the, the Mets jumped out ahead early and got that first inning home run from Pete to put them to put them ahead. And also. Both of these Pete Alonso home runs were with two outs and men on base. That's a, that's a big deal for any team. When you're getting two out RBIs in any ball game you've ever played, ever in your life at any level, you're breaking the other team's back. And the fact that we did it twice in the first five innings against bad pitchers, like, this was all we needed. We're just going to cruise through. And when you got Chris Bassett on the mound doing the Chris Bassett thing, he's he's our better Strowman this year. It's, it's so funny how he fit right into that mold so well. The Bassett hounds are howling. Oh, oh. He's just, he's so reliable. He's so good. Granted, he didn't go six innings today. First time all year. He also didn't really need to. Like, he was good. He wasn't his best, but he was good enough. And did you see, Did you were you able to catch this? The weird thing that happened where uh, Reese Hoskins was at the plate and we thought we struck him out and everyone started walking off the field. But no, call him back. Balk that nobody heard. The first base umpire called a balk on Bass for not coming set. And all of a sudden, it went from getting out of the inning to second and third, 3-2 count with Reese Hoskins up at the plate. He struck him out on the next pitch, so it didn't end up mattering. But oh my God, the umpiring is just... He did balk, to be fair. Like, it was technically the right call. But the fact that they couldn't even be on the same page, relatively speaking, umpiring has been atrocious this year in Major League Baseball. I feel like the worst it's ever been. Definitely has been. It's also just... It's just so much more under the microscope with as as much as Twitter expands every single year, especially in baseball terms, how many accounts that we have, umpire or other, umpire worst calls of the night. Like, it's kind of hilarious, like, how much Twitter rhetoric there is about umpiring. Just do year. your job well, and everyone will stop caring. Like, you know who we don't ever hear about? The good umpires. The only ones that you know the names of are Angel Hernandez, Laz Diaz, C.B. Buckner, the ones who are complete dog shit. You know, I actually forgot about this in bad umpiring in game one. In the first inning of this game, of the first game, Francisco Lindor had a check swing that Phil Cuzzy struck him out on, where he didn't even come close to going around. And then Alec Bohm, the next inning, literally the exact same thing. It was just like, it's a double header, and it was cold out there, so I get that. But, like, give these guys a chance, man. Dude, everyone's, we're all there to watch Phil Cuzzy umpire. That's why we're there. I I even laughed at 
I know this doesn't have to do with the Mets, but the Mass and Bumgarner scenario with uh, Dan Bellino, where he's like, when I first became an umpire, I was told very wise words that umpire is if your children were watching in the first row. I was like, what are we, what are we talking about? It's umpiring the game. You just, you dictate the rules. Why is there this like big pride thing about being an umpire? Get the calls fucking right. If no one, if anyone out there hasn't seen the, is it Dean Bellino or Dan Bellino? Dan Bellino, Dan Bellino. Dambling. If anyone, I was thinking, I'm thinking Dean Blandino, the NFL guy. Yes, <laughs> the guy who chimes in on Fox and gets every call wrong. But so wrong. If anyone out there hasn't seen what happened that Diamondbacks game from, I believe it was Tuesday, Tuesday or yeah. Wednesday, Wednesday. Early this week, yeah. Yeah, it was Wednesday because I did my first pitch podcast day after. And that's not that's not a fancy relevant news, and I let off the show with that because it was one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in a baseball field. Basically, this year there's something of an ump shortage, so there's some taxi umpires somewhere that have teams of taxi players where guys will umpire in AAA and the major leagues. With that, these umpires are a little bit green, a little bit inexperienced, and there was an inexperienced umpire umpiring a Madison Bumgarner start. Madison Bumgarner, knowing this, is going to try to take advantage of a, of a young umpire. And the first inning, he was just barking at him left and right. Almost every single pitch that was near black, Madison Bumgarner was trying to get that zone stretched out for him the rest of the game because as Madison Bumgarner's left shoulder and left elbow die a little bit, he needs to expand the brain. He needs to find other ways to get hitters out, and he has mostly this year. His ERA is shockingly incredible. But the crew chief, Dan Bellino, knowing he had to stick up for his young umpire, gave Madison Mumgarner what I'll call a thorough sticky stuff examination after this inning. He rubbed and massaged Madison Mumgarner's <laughs> hand for minimum 30 seconds. Like, you could put the timer on it. It was 30 Crazy. seconds. Crazy. The whole time while making eye contact, staring in Madison Bumgarner's eyes. I don't even know a one man on earth who had his desire to stare in Madison Bumgarner's eyes for 30 seconds. He even had the stomach to do that. It's a terrifying man. It's like almost sexual how long they looked at each it was other. Border, it was borderline sexual. And then Madison Bumgarner basically said, what the fuck are you doing? And he, they went ballistic. He, Bumgarner had to be restrained by multiple teammates. And he was, of course, thrown out of the game. But if anyone didn't see that exchange, please go on Twitter, go on YouTube, check it out. Just check it out. Anyone that was like the plain video, not the, not the recap lip read version of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that was a little bit offbeat there and didn't have anything to do with the Mets, but moral of the story here is everybody's, everybody goes to the baseball game to watch the umpires. I think we can yeah. all agree with that. Well, Joe West uh, said, and part of my take this week, they interviewed him, which was hilarious, because Joe West is a podcast now. I know. If you, if you think everyone in the world is a podcast now, everyone in the world really is a freaking podcast. He's also, podcast. I, th- I believe he's pushing big crypto and all these other like random things as well. He said that the K-Zone, that all every single TV station shows is incorrect and that there's no umpire in baseball last year who got less than 95 percent of the calls correct which is awesome (laughs) that's savage you also heard the thing of information right that the mlb umpire or mlb came out and said that we give the umpires two inches there's like a two inch respect zone of if they're within two inches it's okay two inches is huge on the strike zone that's so massive that's like the size of a baseball (laughs) everyone support your local unions back to the mets Chris Bassett in this game. Well, he did have some weird stuff going on. First time he didn't finish six innings. He's just he's steady as hell. Steady as hell. He did leave this game for Chase and Shreve, a guy who was also still solid. So he would have finished six innings. If I believe, I don't remember if it was Schwarber or Harper that came up with a man on in the yeah, sixth inning here. We, we I, don't won, remember. I don't remember. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But five and two-thirds, five hits, one earned, one walk, four strikeouts, just five hard-hit balls. Just very clearly wasn't super sharp in a day that was hard to pitch, like we talked about with Max, where it was cold and windy, just downright miserable out there in Philadelphia. There wasn't even that many people out there for Mother's Day game, which is kind of kind of sad. Usually Mother's Day is one of those great baseball days where you could pack the stadium on a sunny day, but we've just been a really cold week in the Northeast for whatever reason. But they didn't get tons of whiffs, but just like, you felt super comfortable his entire game with Bassett on the mound with a respectable lead. The only guy who really got a hold of him was Gene Segura, who hit a home run in the second inning, third inning, or whatever, and then definitely should have had another one on a ball that was just launched down the line in the fourth inning that somehow 
we caught with their back up against the wall. Yeah, the uh, dead baseballs, which we'll get into a little bit more here after we finish up this quick recap here. The dead baseballs are a real thing. It helps us at times. It hurts us at times. In this scenario, it helped us a little bit. And then, of course, our boy Drew Chains came into the game. Sick. Disgusting. Still doesn't give up runs because he's just unbelievably good and Lugo finished it off and the Mets get another series win any other comments here before I start to talk about the dead ball stuff yeah uh, from the first game today I want to shout out Joelli my man Joelli seven straight scoreless appearances who just looks really nasty doing it yeah no Joelli's looked absolutely fantastic uh like you said whoop Joelli Ooh, he's good who who saw this coming not us Great. can't believe it a good can't, reliever is good can't believe he gets the lefties out the thing we pay him for crazy Miguel Castro and his 15% walk rate in the Yankees. I wish I had him back instead of a good lefty that the Mets don't have otherwise. Yeah, well, man, what a horrible trade the Mets made. Okay, so now to the dead ball conversation because... Miguel Eckersley. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Miguel Eckersley. <laughs> Need him. That's, that got to be good. But yeah, back to the dead ball conversation. In between game one, the rainouts, and game three, game two and three, Eric Chavez made some comments to the news i don't i don't even know who he made comments to but he a made reporter. comments to a reporter in which he was talking about the baseballs and he was saying that a lot of the guys have been complaining pete alonso of course had the theory that they use different balls for different games when they're nationally televised that the mets or whoever's playing gets the juice baseballs and in other games especially teams that no one cares about like when you get a tigers royals game they'll go to the dead balls because let's keep offense down there let's keep those guys stats down so we don't have to pay them as much well, Eric Chavez was like, we've actually done our own research here. We've looked at the exit fields, we've looked at launch angles, we've looked at, looked at expected distances that all these balls are supposed to be going. They're not going the same distance as baseballs in the past. Clearly something has changed here. Clearly the balls are different. And shout out to Wick Sachs, one on Twitter, who kind of brought this up and wanted us to talk about it. He was saying the J.D. Davis ball that was hit, that was smoked to center field, that you kind of didn't even get to the warning track. I couldn't believe it. Gene Segura, you mentioned. There was a lot of balls in this series, even the Francisco Lindor ball down the line. There was a lot of balls this series, all around baseball, that you've seen day in and day out that look like, no doubt, home runs that are not even getting close to being hit. The balls, man. I mean, why did they do this? What... I, I got to assume you think that they did something to the balls too, right? Of course they did something to the balls. I think they're just trying to figure out the best ball to procure the type of offense they want in the best way. I saw a great graphic that was put up on Twitter the other day. I want to get the person's name so I don't forget. It's a baseball writer for Yahoo. His name is Zach Prizer. He put up this, and formerly, uh, formerly from Baseball Prospectus, this crazy chart about slugging percentage based on the exit velocity of baseballs. I think I actually sent it to you. Yeah. Slug, slugging percentage based on launch angle of baseballs. And it has every single year, so since 2015, since kind of right before we realized that Major League Baseball was screwing with these balls and showing the slugging percentage on a specific launch angle in five-degree increments, starting from five degrees, 10 degrees, 11 to 15, and then so on and so forth. Basically, once you get to like 26, 30 degrees, that's basically your home run launch angle. It's always been known as your slugging percentage is like minimum 1,800 to like 2,400 year after year after year. This year, so far, 2022, the slugging percentage on balls in play at a launch angle between 26 degrees and 30 degrees is down below 1,500, which is, again, if you look at this graph, it's very clear. It's all woo-woo-woo-woo. Every single year, basically exactly the same. Even the, the rabbit ball year compared to the, what was thought before as a dead ball year in 2017 and 18. This year, it's cratered way past that. And the most steady the launch angle is from year to year, including this one, are balls in play between 
5 degrees and about 17 degrees. So it's very clear, I think, especially after this offseason, especially after this lockout, that Major League Baseball is trying to procure offense on base hits. They want the ball in play more. They want to incentivize balls in play that are grounders, single-type baseball, rather than guys just swinging for the fences. And to their credit, these evil geniuses, it might actually be working a little bit. We've heard Jeff McNeil talk about this a few times this year. He's like, I'm just not going to try it for power. The ball's not going out. I'm going to put the ball in play and make things happen. This Mets team may have walked ass backwards into the perfect style of offense to, <laughs> to, to respond to this bullshit baseball that Major League Baseball is putting out. And it's kind of hilarious. It was almost like why the Phillies could be struggling because they have a lot of guys that are very much reliant on the old way or the not the old way, but the new way of playing baseball, home runs and walks. The old new way. Yes, the old new way. Mets really stumbled into this one if this is how it ends up playing all year. Also, the humidors, got to talk about that too. Every stadium now has humidors, and they're being used all year long. They're apparently horrendous in the spring and fall months, great in the summer. They're basically calibrated to work for June, July, August. So when you have April, cold weather, you just get screwed. And that's like stupid. That's dumb. Well, and logically too, humidors add moisture to baseballs. And the when there's colder air... And the ball is more moist. It makes the ball heavier. So it's less like it's going to fly through the air with less velocity and not go as far. Also, before we wrap up this quick ball talk, before we get to our first prospect report, if you guys are still with us in a very, very long time, we've just been busy. Prospect report coming up. I want to shout out Dr. Meredith Willis at BBL underscore astrophysics on Twitter. She's a PhD in astrophysics. She is calling out to everybody in the baseball community who's going to games this year to send her any baseball that you've gotten from a Major League Baseball game this year and labeled with date, if you know it, and labeled by stadium you got it in. And she want, she's, unco- she's going through all these baseballs and trying to figure out why the drag is different in different parks at different times and different games. So if anyone out there is listening, go check out Meredith Willis on Twitter, at BBL underscore astrophysics, but there's no why. So at BBL underscore A-S-T-R-O-P-H-Y-S-C-S. Check out her pin tweet. She wants DMs of people who have gotten baseballs at Major League Games this year because she wants to figure out what's going on and if there's any consistency or inconsistency with these balls across the league. Dude, this is literally like the, the bat signal for Zach Hample. He could be the hero that we need right now. The dude gets every fucking baseball at every single game. I, I've, got, I've got connections. I'm going to drop that. I'm going to drop that at to him. I'm going to let him know. He's friendly with me. He's a nice guy. He also is a little bit weird with getting baseballs. This this might be the redemption arc that Zach Hample needs for the baseball world. Imagine he's the reason why we uncover, because he has so many baseballs, that these baseballs are messed up. They screwed with them big time. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy that you said that, too, because that's something I actually wanted to do a long time ago, or back in 2019, was do a video comparing baseballs and just, like, feeling them and holding them. Be like, okay, I know I have older baseballs. Let me get a 2019 baseball. Let's see how it feels. Like, let's just play around with it. That's a fun YouTube video. Definitely, and everyone... Again, check out Meredith. She's doing great work over there. And a literal astrophysicist. Super genius. So smarter, smarter than any of us will ever be. By far. But love, love that she's doing God's work. You know what she doesn't know, though? What? Prospects. Nope. Maybe. She, has, she hasn't got a clue about Alex Ramirez. I can tell you that right now. She's got no clue. He's not, she's not even on his radar. But Alex Ramirez, this is a guy that you spoke about way back. First ever prospect reported as a, hey, take a look at this guy. He's 18 years old in A-ball. He must be decent he must be okay James you, you couldn't have undersold it more the dude's really really good Alex Ramirez is hitting so well right now that that when all the prospect guys start making their midseason updates in July if he stays as high as he has been that's really freaking hot 
he has a potential to already be like a top 70 prospect. And I'm not even exaggerating there. Yeah, he's been so incredibly good. I mean, he is that dude. Send him to Brooklyn. Let's get him in Brooklyn already. What is he doing in St. Louis? There's no reason he's dominating at the level. Now, granted, he still doesn't walk. 4.7 walk rate. That's something that you definitely need to see get up a little bit if you want to see the success that he has be sustainable. But he's also not striking out. Under 20% K rate, along with he's hitting for power. He's running the bases well. Doubles, triples, home runs. He's doing it all. 380 batting average, 421 on base, 590 slugging, and a 1011 OPS on the year. He is the best statistical hitter in the entire minor leagues for the New York Mets right now. And he's also got the most plate appearances, which means they see something in this guy. They want to see him get as many reps as possible. Well, he's hitting leadoff every day because Alex Ramirez also on top of his good power and his bat-to-ball skills. He's a sick athlete. The guy's faster than lightning. He's blazing speed. And you mentioned being one of the best, Mets' best hitters in their system. He's one of the best hitters in all of low A right now. He has, he had, I believe, a 144 WRC plus heading into play on Sunday, which was top three in the whole league as one of the league's youngest players. You know who's really, really close with him with these numbers right now? This one's going to hurt. Whoa. Oh. P- PCA, P. Crow Armstrong. Yeah. Dude looks good. PCA is a whole year older than him. Whole year older, at least. <laughs> Might be two. He looks really good. But yes, Alex Ramirez is our guy right now. He's our super, super young prospect that everyone needs to keep an eye out for. Like you said, Keith Law is the only one who really gave him a lot of love right now going into the year, and you hit the nail on the head. He was trying to find his next Tatis because he did that same thing as well. I don't think he's going to—I'm not willing to say he's the next Tatis by any means because that's hyperbole by all means, but the idea is that Alex Ramirez has got stuff here. looks like he'd be a little five-tool player that the Mets have, just kind of casually hiding in the minors right now. Definitely. Keith Law put him as his number 100th prospect on his preseason list. The same reason I even shouted him out in like the 20th ever episode of this podcast because, oh, this guy has tools. He got a big signing bonus, and this organization has proven to be able to develop players. Let me mention him now, and then when he's good, I get all the credit. Receipts, baby. Got receipts. It's a great plan. I'm happy me and Keith Law are like having that the meme where we grab hands with that. <laughs> Yes. Other guys that you guys know about that we'll mention on the offensive side, Francisco Alvarez, Ronnie, Beatty, Vientos. We'll talk about them all real quickly. Alvarez not looking so great right now. He kind of hit a bit of a skid after he was so incredibly hot for those first two weeks. It's going to happen. He's 20 years old in AA. Again, one of the younger players at that level in all of minor league baseball. So it's nothing to be worried about, I don't think, by any means. Yeah, basically, people should just kind of relax with the promote Francisco Alvarez right now. Rhetoric, again, he's 20 years old in the minor leagues playing catcher, the hardest position in this whole game to play. And and like you said, it's not really that great. He has not hit a home run since April 17th, basically since we stopped doing these prospect reports. So maybe since now we're going to start doing these regularly again, hopefully as we have the time, it'll, it'll get him back going. But he's hitting 157 over that time too. It's just, it's growing pains. He's 20. Do you have to watch James McCann, Tom, Tomas Nito ground in double plays? I'm sorry about that. But you're probably not going to see Francisco Alvarez this season. As Even though he said he does want to still make his debut this season, he's going to have to do a lot better to make that happen. Yeah, he's definitely going to have to heat up a little bit. Listen, he's we know he's an avid listener of the Messed Up podcast. So of he was course, probably like a friend, the guy, a friend. Friend, the boys aren't talking about me. What do I have to play well for? Now that we're talking about you again, Francisco, it's fine. We give you the green light. You can go back to mashing again. He'll be fine. Ronnie and Beatty. Both fine. Again, there's just not really a lot to talk about with these guys. They've all just kind of been playing baseball. Ronnie and Bailey are both just still better than league average at the AA level. Both a little bit older than Francisco. Bailey's 22, I believe now. Ronnie's 21, so a little more experienced. They both had more reps in A-ball than him, at least. Bailey, the power is meh, and the strikeouts are just basically where they've always been in the system for him in the mid-20s, but he's walking a lot, and he's hitting more fly balls than he hit last year at the same level over a similar 
um, sample. So I like to see that. One of the big knocks on Bailey heading into the year was that he wasn't lifting the ball enough, and is happy he's doing that. Ronnie is lifting the ball better as well. He's hitting for power. His strikeouts are a tiny bit better. They've gotten below 30%. He's still not walking. It's fine. We're seeing progress, just seeing these guys who are both, again, lower than the average age at their level. Beatty being about the average age, Ronnie being significantly lower than the average age, and then Francisco Alvarez being dramatically lower than the average age. It's nice that we're seeing them at least hold their own and just even just be, being hot and cold at times, seeing that roller coaster, it means that you that that's development, that's adjustment, that's seeing them kind of learn this game as they go through. It's kind of the same thing we're seeing with Vientos too, who's in AAA. Again, younger than most of the guys that are in AAA. That's basically where a lot of the borderline minor or major leaguers hang out. A lot of older dudes have had a cup of coffee there. A lot of dudes who have had success and maybe aren't as good anymore, gotten older. He's been kind of hot and cold, like you said. He just had a big four RBI game on Sunday, which is when we're recording this. So that's good to see. We know he's good. We know he's talented. He's gonna, I think hit the majors at some point this year. They probably just want to see him play a little bit more, and you don't have to rush him right now. There's no reason for him to be on the Major League roster yet, so let him get comfortable and start to figure things out because there is a massive adjustment on all these levels, and especially we know the big jump going from AAA to Major Leagues. Absolutely, and Vientos, this is the best week he's had all season. He has multiple multi-hit games after he hasn't had a multi-hit game in almost three full weeks. He's striking out more than 30% of the time, which is something that I thought he kind of worked out of the system last year when he got very hot, but... Teams probably just have more video on him. They probably found a new hole in his swing, and now he has to adjust to that. And that's good. He's still legit. He's lifting the ball plenty. There is plenty of power in that bat, and he is young for the level. So just let these guys let these guys grow on their own pace. And then we got three pitchers for you guys. Three names. You've heard a bunch of them. Calvin Ziegler, Eric Ors, Jose Budo. Uh, which one do you want to take, James? I'm going to let you just, just run with one. I want to talk about Budo. Budo's my favorite. I've been talking about him for a while, too. Talk about him. Let's hear it. Jose Budo's made six starts this year at Double A Binghamton. He's a 24-year-old, so he's a, he's basically league average to the level, a little bit older. But in terms of pitching, that's kind of where a lot of these pitchers kind of stick at this age. Not the ones who are like super prospects who have really amazing stuff, but the ones who are just kind of learning how to pitch, like Budo, who needs to learn how to pitch because he doesn't have a crazy breaking ball and he doesn't have elite velocity, like we mentioned before. He had one really awful start this season on April 27th, where he gave up five earned and four and a third innings, but he's been completely lights out otherwise. Very shiny ERA under three. 35% strikeout rate, 7% walk rate. These are some of the best numbers in the entire Eastern AA League between that strikeout minus walk rate. So this is a guy who does have the talent, I think, to contend at the Major League level sooner rather than later. I'm sticking to that. I really think we're going to see Jose Budo give the Mets some innings this year. But what I am starting to think is that maybe the Mets, kind of similar to the way Tyler McGill was brought along last year, especially when he was still in AA, maybe they don't see him exactly as a starter right now. Not that he can't become a starter because he's going to develop a changeup or a a slider or a curveball eventually to go along with his great changeup and his fastball with decent velocity but really great shape. I could see Jose Budo becoming some kind of bullpen weapon for the Mets later this season, like a two, three, four inning guy like McGill was earlier last year. He's yet to complete six full innings in the minor leagues, and with that he, this season, and he's had a couple starts where he was very clean with a lot of strikeouts, not a lot of walks, not a lot of hits, not a lot of runs. So I think it is possible, but I do think that they are kind of capping him around the 75-80 pitch mark in a way to kind of make sure he's using his best stuff more consistently rather than, quote-unquote, learning how to pitch, which there's, I don't know, people could think differently about that in terms of development, but I do think that the Mets want to make sure that at least he's using that fastball with vertical movement and that changeup with downward break and fade before he works on anything else because those two pitches alone can have him be useful in the major league sooner rather than later. The Mets up boys have been on Budo early. I picked up a Budo autograph the other day. $5. Sure. Give me that. That's free money. That's free money. He's going to get called up and he's going to be okay. If he has one good major league start in the next 18 months, you are going to 
make $20 on that card. Yes, and that's that's good. That's That pays for lunch the next day. I'm happy with that. Here's another Mets pitcher to talk about. Kevin Z- Calvin Ziegler. Mm-hmm. He was one of the top picks last year, or two years ago. My bad, two years ago for the Mets. No, last year in the Kumar Rocker draft. That's right. He was in the Kumar Rocker one. Okay, yeah, last year. I was right. I doubted myself. Yeah, I don't thought, doubt yourself. Yeah, I, I, I doubted myself. I shouldn't have done that. He's looked cool. He's looked interesting in St. Lucie. He's striking out a ton of guys. His stuff is explosive, which was kind of... The kind of the calling card when he got drafted was he has explosive stuff. Maybe he needs to learn to pitch a little bit more. And his numbers kind of dictate that. He's got a 40% carry rate in 18 innings, 17% walk rate. So the walks are definitely high. But again, he's a guy who's kind of learning how to pitch now as a professional. Great fastball, great curveball. The dude can pitch. Clean it up a little bit. Watch him pitch. If you watch him, uh, Jacob Resnick's been putting out tons and tons of great videos. So make sure you guys follow him on Twitter. He's He's the prospect Mets guy that you definitely need to be following. Lots of great stuff. I'm watching Calvin Ziegler pitch, and I go, oh, yeah. I I like the guts that we're seeing here with this guy. Clean up the walks. He's got the strikeout stuff already. We're going to be good. And Ziegler, if I remember, along with Dominic Hamill from the Mets draft class last year, was kind of just one of these, like, basically stack cast diamonds in the rough. He came from Canada, if I remember correctly, right? He's Canadian. He's six feet tall. So he's not the prototypical guy that you see who has a big arm, and you're like, oh, look at this guy throwing 99. But Ziegler's a little bit smaller. But he's got great spin. Great spin, great velocity, good shapes. That's all it takes to get to the majors at this point. I'm happy that he has shown the strikeout stuff early in his professional career. And then the last guy we're going to talk about here, Eric Ors. Ors, I think it's Ors, not Orze. I don't, I don't know. But he was the fifth-round pick back in 2020 at the University of New Orleans. I know too much about this guy. He probably is going to get to the majors at some point. He's pitching really well in AAA. He gets blown up a couple times, but what reliever doesn't? What I do like, though... 40% K rate, 9% walk rate. That stuff right there translates to the next level at the absolute worst. When we need an arm to come up, he will be very serviceable, it seems like, because he does have the swing and miss stuff. Someone to keep an eye out for. He does not have a 40-man spot, I believe. So it's they not will, right now. Yeah, they will have to clear someone. I don't know who that would be. But keep an eye out for Eric Ors. He seems like he'll probably get a shot at some point this year. Yeah, high strikeouts, low walks. He's giving up, seems like, a significant amount of home runs right now at AAA, which, I mean, who knows what the ball looks like in down there at this point or what what major league baseball is experimenting with there triple a also if i'm not mistaken they are using the electronic strikes on this year right i think so and they have those weird rules too too with the the pitch clock and if you're not if you're not in the box early enough you get called out on a strikeout like it's it's crazy rules down there yeah so I, if anyone does check out eric Orz's fan graphs or baseball reference page I, you'll see an era it's about eight but i really would caution people not to be concerned with that because when you're looking at minor league pitchers you just want to look at swing and miss stuff and keeping and and not walking guys. And right now, that's what Eric Ors is doing. Also, a stat I don't like that I actually railed against on this podcast and on Twitter over the last week is XFIP because XFIP takes FIP and it just neutralizes the pitcher's home run rate, which that makes sense in terms of like being predictive and looking at guys' future performances. But in terms of what a guy does, a lot of things that a pitcher does will make their home run rates naturally higher or lower, just naturally based on what they throw, how they throw, who they throw against. Eric Ors' XFIP is actually good. So the balls that he's allowing in play besides the ones that are going over the fence, aren't really of... No, but like they aren't like being hit especially hard. And theoretically, if you're trying to predict how Eric Orze will pitch in the future, or it's whatever, less, there's less, less of a likelihood that he's going to allow a home run on 42% of the fly balls that he's given so far. Yeah, it's like an, it's an unsustainable rate, but obviously, so eleven innings. Yeah, when people when people throw the X about for a singular oh, game performance, that. like we saw so on mad. Twitter, that's like that's so brain dead. It's like we're using an expected stat, even like 
Do even the expected batting average stuff on like singular balls being hit now. It's like people, we we got to be better than this. We know that that's not how expected batting average and all these stats are supposed to be used. No, baseball savant is rarely available to every single person in the world, so it's very easy to throw something out like that and do it. I got really bad at one guy because he he told me that Jack Flaherty was good because his ex-fip going back 2018 was like fantastic. I was like, you're an idiot. That's not how baseball works. Just Eric Orris is missing bats. Eric Orris is missing bats. We got to find his name out. We, we'll figure this out. The next, next, prospect, next prospect report, report. <laughs> I promise, Eric, whatever your last name is, we're going to get it right. We're going to show you the respect you deserve because you're getting strikeouts. That's the prospect report, guys. Haven't done that in about a month. Feels good to be back talking prospects. I love talking prospects. Love talking prospects. Happy that we're able to give like kind of a cast a wide net here with a lot of different types of prospects. Yeah, for sure. We got Alex Ramirez, the young gun. We got Vientos, double A. We're covering pitchers. We're covering it all. Let's wrap it up here with the next series. What do we got, James? What are we looking at here? Heading to Washington for a three-game set against the Nationals, which is the second time this season so far that the Mets have gone literally exactly from Philadelphia to Washington, which I think is kind of funny. That is funny. And what are our pitching matchups? I mean, we know we're a better team than the Nationals, so this should be a fairly easy series. Another one we should win. Of course, they do have Juan Soto and Josh Bell and Nelson Cruz, who are competent Major League Baseball players. But on the pitching side, it's extremely rough. And I can't wait to hear who we get to face. Off day for the Mets on Monday, so it's going to be the Mets' third off day in four days, which that kind of just sucks as like wanting to watch these games. But I'm sure the team really appreciates it. Actually, maybe they're not. Maybe they're just trying to get back on the get get the ball rolled again. But Tuesday, Tyler McGill versus Patrick Corbin, which I pray to God that we just hit the ball a mile against him. JD Davis lock him in for a home run against Patrick Corbin. <laughs> calling it. Yeah, plus three hundred probably on DraftKings. Wednesday night, we have a get-right spot for Taiwan Walker against, again, not a very good Nationals lineup. It's not the worst lineup in the world. Like, I will say that while this Nationals team as a whole is really bad, most of that badness is felt in their rotation and in their bullpen. The, the, the me this order, though, is good. The first six hitters are all at least of major league caliber, which is better than you could say about a lot of very bad teams. But Taiwan Walker against, here, this one, Aaron Sanchez. I'm sorry, what? Yes. Aaron Sanchez is playing? Yeah. Only still 29 years old. He has resurfaced with the Nationals, and... Of course, doesn't look very good, but... The, the craziest thing you just... He's 29? Yeah. That's crazier than he's still pitching. I thought he was like 35. Aaron Sanchez is 29 on the Nationals. He came up very young. People forget. What? That's mm-hmm. mind, mind-blowing information to me. You just... I can't even believe I just heard that. Mess him up. He's not good. No, he's not good at all. His ERA is 9 this year. It's a small sample. ERA doesn't matter, but he's also not missing bats, whatever. And then a Thursday matinee, 1 o'clock game, Carlos Carrasco versus Joe Nadone. Joe Nadone? Impressed us the last time, but he's not very good. No, he's not very good. He's, I think he has a good, that's one good breaking ball. It's either curveball or slider. I can't remember right now. But he's a guy who strikes people out, but also that gets hit really hard. So these games in Washington, that is a low-key, very easy park to hit. Mets got to hit. Just yeah. rip the ball, score seven runs a game, and then get to next weekend's home series against Seattle. Fun series. Mets never play the Mariners, especially at home. So let's win these games, win another series. I'd love a sweep. Still haven't seen one of those. Uh, this would be such a good time to sweep coming back home. The crowd would be raucous on Friday night for that Seattle game. It would be great vibes. Still, regardless, Mets are playing really well. First team to 20 wins. First in first place by a good chunk right now. I know you don't want to talk standings, but you know I have to. And the Mets continue to move on here. That is going to be the episode, guys. Messed up episode number 90. A long one. We haven't done an hour episode in a long, long time, but shockingly we had a lot to talk about with also not a lot to talk about considering everything that didn't happen we did five minutes on umpires 
it, we did do five minutes. And on then the astrophysics. We and did. Balls. Yeah, oh yeah, forgot about the astrophysics. It's it's been a long one, guys. Thank you for hanging around. Thank you for listening or watching. Make sure you're following us on all our social media at Metzed Up. If you want to watch the YouTube video, Metzed Up Podcast, search it up. You'll be able to find us. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find us, you can hear us. Drop us a rating. Drop us a review. Follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Follow me at Draftic Mark. Shout out to the Seven Line as always always helping us out here on the podcast and that's where we'll wrap it up guys we'll see you next episode episode number 91 after the washington national series peace out peace out guys see you next time